uh, to our musicians, great recovery. Thank you very much for accompanying us. Let's go to our God once again in our prayer of illumination. Lord, incline our hearts to your word. Give us a desire for it and open our eyes to see the wonders that are there. But even as our eyes see it and our ears hear it, you must also subdue our wills and give us an obedient spirit. Oh Lord, satisfy our hearts with a vision of yourself and your way for our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3? For the last uh, uh, few weeks, we've been looking at these seven letters written by the risen Lord Jesus through the Apostle John to seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, these letters apply to us as well today, and we know that, and the way we know that is in part because of the number seven. Seven is a number of completeness, and so the fact that there are seven letters indicates it wasn't just for those seven churches, but it was for all churches throughout all ages. The fifth of these letters is what we're going to be studying today. It's to the church at Sardis. Sardis was about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira, which we saw last week, and you remember that the delivery route of these letters, they go in order where the messenger would have delivered them one by one, but all seven letters would have been read in all seven churches. Sardis was a once great city of trade and travel. It was a city that was surrounded by cliffs, which made it seem to be invulnerable to attacks. But such a sense of invulnerability often bred a sense of complacency among the people of Sardis. And so twice in history, they were caught by surprise. Once by Cyrus in 546 BC, once by Antiochus III in 214 BC. Well, it seems that complacency is a chronic problem for the church at Sardis, not just at the political and military level, but at the spiritual level as well. And Jesus has some words for them. Let's read our words, uh, our Lord's words to the church at Sardis. Revelation 3, starting at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you'll not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I'll come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. When Stephanie and I were in seminary, when I was a full-time seminarian, um, we were probably the poorest we've ever been. And we lived in the wealthiest part, or at least the seminary was in the wealthiest part of Charlotte. And one of the ways we were able to make ends meet was that we worked with an apartment ministry 
the first year of seminary, and the arrangement was that we would do outreach in our apartment complex, and a portion of our rent would be covered. It was really great ministry training, and it was an opportunity to serve the kingdom of God uh, while in seminary. One of the families we got to know was a family who had moved to Charlotte from France, and we spent, got to spend a good bit of time with them and to speak to them about the gospel. And one evening, they invited us to their apartment for dinner, and French cooking, at least by reputation, is pretty excellent, and so we were excited. I think that's what they call suffering for the kingdom, right? We got to the apartment, and they had cooked pizzas. And we didn't expect pizza for French food, but we love pizza, and these had this, this thick, great-looking dough covered by homemade sauce and, and great-looking cheese. And on top of them was what appeared to be a thick layer of caramelized onions. Now, I'm fine with caramelized onions, but it appeared to be a little bit much, but it's for the kingdom, right? Well, one bite showed me things were not as they seemed. What I thought were caramelized onions was about a quarter-inch thick layer of anchovies. I love God's kingdom, but that's a hard one to swallow, isn't it? Stephanie and I were both sick at the thought of eating this pizza. We didn't want to offend our host, so we did what anybody would do in a situation like that. We looked to see if they had a dog. I don't remember if they had a dog, but I don't think the dog would have eaten it either. And so we cut it up into little bites and kind of spread it around our plate, hoping that our host didn't notice. You know, the lesson we learned that day is, of course, the lesson that you've learned in various ways of life, too, that things are not always as they seem. We've all been deceived by the way something looks on the outside, a meal, a book, a person. And sometimes it's true of churches as well, isn't it? It's possible for a church to look very much alive on the outside, but on the inside be very dead, isn't it? That's the case of the church at Sardis. They looked good on the outside. But that seems to have actually been what their desire was, to garner a good reputation with outsiders. They, they wanted to make a name for themselves as a vibrant, active, living church. They wanted to be sort of the place to be. We miss this in the English translation, but at the end of verse 1 there, it says you have the reputation of being alive. It actually, the, the Greek would be you have the name of being alive. The word name is repeated four times in this passage, giving us a clue that it's, it's one of the key things. See, Sardis, you want to make a name for yourself. And though that name, that reputation may exist, that you are in the eyes of the world a vibrant living church, I have a different name for you. It's that you are a dead church. There's three things Jesus points out here that I want you to see. First, there's a rebuke. Second, there's a remedy. And third, there's a reward. That's what we're going to camp out in today, the rebuke, the remedy, the reward. You'll find these printed in your bulletin, by the way. There's a page for taking notes. I'd urge you to take notes. I'm, I can already tell you what's going to happen. I've got a lot of lists in this sermon, and so I'm going to get home, and my sweet wife, and she's always so encouraging, she, she is going to say, you had way too many lists in that sermon. So I'm giving you a heads up. You need to write them down as we go, and so hopefully I'll be off the hook. If you see Stephanie after the service, tell her it was so clear, and you didn't get confused at all by any of the lists that I gave you the rebuke. Verse 1, Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. It's a good thing, of course, for a church to have a good reputation. You know, even, even unbelievers, they may not agree with our methods or our message, but they ought to at least respect the character of Christians. 
Well, Sardis had a good reputation. So if you were to say to people, what do you know about this church in Sardis? Maybe you're asking other churches. Maybe you're asking people in the community. They might say something like this, oh, that's a great church. They're feeding the poor. They've got a great children's ministry. They're well organized. They've got a great pastor. They're bursting at the seams. That's a vibrant church. Now, all of those are good things. But the problem at Sardis is that's exactly what they want people to say. They want to, they're putting on airs. They're putting out this reputation, seeking to make a name for themselves. They were living for the praise of men as a cover-up for the fact that they did not walk with God. It was hypocrisy. Hypocrisy really just means wearing a mask. They lived for their reputation, but it was a hollow shell. They were busy with their hands, but they did not have a heart that was engaged in a relationship with the living God. That's what Jesus means when he says at the end of verse 2, your works are not complete. Hey, Sardis, I see the great quantity of things you're doing, but despite the programs, despite the busyness, despite your constant activity, something's missing. Your works are not complete. Now, before we go any further, I think all of us probably, if we have any humility about us, we're going to say, well, couldn't that be said of, of all of us? Couldn't that be said of, of, of me? I mean, who among us has done everything we ought to do as a Christian? Of course, none of us have. But Jesus is not speaking. When he says your works are not complete, he's not speaking of quantity, but of quality. The problem wasn't that their hands hadn't done enough. It was a problem of the heart. They've got all these outward signs of life, but inwardly their hearts are dead. You and I, we look at the outward appearance of things. We, we see what people do. When Jesus looks at us, he sees not just what we do outwardly, but he sees the heart. He sees why we do what we do. He sees if it's fervent love or empty religion. And he looks at Sardis and says, I see you. I see you. It's a lot of duty without devotion. There's religious activity, but there's no spiritual vitality. I, th I think Sardis would fall into the same category that Jesus used when he was quoting Isaiah in Matthew 15, verse 8. He says, these people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You know, I wonder if, if the people of Sardis receive this letter and they start reading it and they look at the messenger and say, you know, I think you've got the wrong address here. There must be another church at Sardis because there's no way you're talking about us. Look at, look at this list of programs we've got. Look how busy we are. You know, what Jesus cares about in a church isn't whether we're staying busy. It's not all the programs that we can boast in. It's not even the size of the congregation. What the Lord Jesus cares about is, are you growing in love with me? You know, in the other churches, despite whatever problems they had, Jesus, even before he would sometimes rebuke them, he would commend them. So he'd say, I know your works. And the Ephesians, they were zealous for good doctrine. Smyrna endured persecution. Pergamum had been a faithful witness. Thyatira, they had faith and love and service. All of those churches, they had other issues, but Jesus begins with, with commending them. But it comes to Sardis, and he says, you know, the only thing you've got going for you is your reputation. That's a hard rebuke. What does it mean spiritually for the church? It means that despite their reputation in the world, the predominant 
spiritual condition of the people at Sardis is that they are unbelievers. They are what Jesus would elsewhere call whitewashed tombs. You know, you make it look good on the outside, but inside you're full of rotten bones. I think another, a good illustration for this is that the church can be like a snake when its head is cut off. If you've ever killed a snake, sometimes the snake will wiggle for a while. And churches can be spiritually dead, but they can keep moving for years. We don't know what the specifics were at Sardis, what kind of activities they were busy about to cover up their spiritual deadness, but we know it happens all the time in our day. And I want to give you some of the ways churches do this, not so that you can look at other churches and say, ah, they're like the church at Sardis, but so that you and I can guard this church against that snake syndrome of wiggling around long after we've been dead. What happens when a church loses its gospel zeal is it tends to become propped up by a whole bunch of of isms. I'm going to start with the first, probably the one we are most vulnerable to here as a church, and that would be traditionalism. You know, by most counts, we're considered a fairly traditional church, and I think a lot of us, we appreciate beautiful buildings, we appreciate historic, uh, reverent liturgies, we tend to like a more uh, transcendent service. All of those things can be really good things. But we, as a church, we need to be on guard against traditionalism, doing it for the sake of tradition. This is just what we've always done. It's one thing to do it saying, this is what we have learned from our brothers and sisters who have gone before us, and this is what we believe the scriptures teach about worship. That produces a healthy sort of what I'd call traditional worship. But there's something called traditionalism that you do it just because that's the way you've always done it. And that is tremendously dangerous for the church because right now there are thousands of churches, probably in South Carolina alone, meeting in historic old buildings, using beautiful liturgies. The people are all wearing their Sunday best, and yet there is nothing going on inside those churches of any spiritual value. In fact, I I suspect that Jesus' assessment of them would be what we saw back in, in Revelation 2 when he spoke about the synagogue of Satan. They may profess the name of Jesus, but they don't obey Jesus or worship Jesus. And we've got to be on guard against that. Traditionalism can create a church that just goes through the motions, that does what it does just because that's what it's always done. What you find in those settings is that Jesus is great as long as he fits into the margins of their lives. It probably didn't used to be that way in those churches. I don't think it's that way at this church, but it could become that way. Beautiful building, beautiful liturgy, no gospel, no life. The, God, the devil doesn't mind beautiful buildings and liturgies and music as long as it's just empty traditionalism. How do we guard against that? Well, I think there's a lot of things that the pastor needs to do to guard against that, the elders need to do, but I'm going to pass the buck on to you for a minute. The way we guard against empty traditionalism is for you, the people of this church, to have a vibrant 
walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, a daily walk with the Lord Jesus, not just trying to fit him into the margins of your life, but when you come together in worship, worship is an outpouring, an overflow of a week spent walking with and rejoicing in Jesus Christ. If you go six days out of the week and don't think much about Jesus Christ, and then you come here and you expect to worship wholeheartedly, it's not going to happen. You're just going to go through the motions. And so all of us as a church have the duty to ensure that we're truly walking with Christ, that this isn't just empty tradition. Uh, part of that's why we send out that email each week telling you what we're going to be singing so that you can familiarize yourself with the words. It tells you what I'm going to be preaching on what Pastor Walton's going to be preaching on so that you know the text in advance and you can come ready. You can come hungry. Those are the ways we can guard against one day hearing from the Lord Jesus, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's the first ism. That's a danger is traditionalism. A second danger is experientialism. That's, that's the church that's all about having a spiritual experience. This is the church that rides the wave of emotion more than actual spiritual vitality. In fact, when the spiritual vitality is all gone, it's all, all that's left is emotionalism. And so every goal, every week, the goal becomes just to get the congregation worked up with some palpable experience of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying there aren't times we feel the Holy Spirit at work. We certainly do. But the substance of our Christianity is not what we can feel. The substance of Christianity is the truth of the gospel. And it is true whether I feel it that day or not. The Lord doesn't need my experience to validate the truthfulness of his word. Another ism that can endanger the church, that a church can die and keep going and wiggling along is pragmatism. Pragmatism says the church does whatever works, whatever the world likes, whatever draws the world in. If it attracts people, if it adds to the numbers, let's do it. The pragmatic church typically can grow quickly. It can grow so quickly that nobody thinks to ask, are we spiritually alive at all? And what it tends to produce is a man-centered, program-driven church rather than a spirit-powered church. Churches, by the way, that have sold out to pragmatism, to the whatever works mentality, are now the ones that are capitulating on major moral issues like, like gender and sexuality, because they have so trained themselves to do whatever the world wants them to do, that now, when the world is asking the church to believe some pretty radical and, we'll say, uh, offensive and abominable things, the church says, okay, we'll do that. We'll believe that if that makes us popular with you. The pragmatic church can't help but do whatever appeals to the world, and in so doing, forsakes the gospel. You know, a church can be simultaneously growing in numbers and just as dead at the, as the church at Sardis. A final ism is do-goodism. This is the church that just wants to always be busy. Let's do this service project. Let's implement this program. We don't care what we're doing as long as we're busy, as long as I have something to do. And that can start as a very good thing. But oftentimes what we see in churches, what we see in, in organizations, is that it, it devolves from doing good for the sake of the gospel to simply doing good because it feels good. 
you, you'd be surprised if you look at, at, at uh, history statements, uh, the history of, of many different organizations, even charitable organizations in America, so many of them started with the purpose of proclaiming the gospel, but through the years, they have begun to just focus on do-goodism, and they have left the gospel behind. You know, the Lord's words here are rebuke to all of these isms because they often function to mask the fact that the church has long been dead. We have to guard against this, allowing the vibrancy of our singing or the intensity of the preaching or the consistency of our church attendance to become a cover for the absence of spiritual vitality. That's what was happening at Sardis, and Jesus loves them enough to speak these hard words of rebuke. Thankfully, he doesn't just give them a rebuke. He cares deeply for his church, and so he gives the remedy as well. It's actually a twofold remedy. The first is repent. We see that in verse 3. Remember then what you've received and heard, keep it and repent. Uh, That word remember there, it seems to be indicating that it's been a while since the gospel got to Sardis, and maybe there was sincere faith and sincere repentance but maybe we're a generation or two removed. And, and, and the church has become numb to it. They've become callous to it. The vast majority of people just go through the motions. In fact, it's easy to imagine that many of the people at Sardis would hear this rebuke from Jesus and they would kind of yawn and be indifferent towards it. That's what Jesus is saying in every one of these letters when he says that repeated line, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you want to know if you're spiritually alive? There's a simple test. What do you do with the Word of God when it's preached, when it's read, when it rebukes you? What do you do as a result of it? Do you see Uh, Do you hear hard things from Scripture and repent? Do you see areas of life in which your life is being more and more conformed to the image of Christ? That's the sign of spiritual life, that His Spirit is living in you, producing repentance and new obedience. One of our faithful members here came up to me last week after church and said, You know, after each of these letters from Jesus to the churches in Asia Minor, and and we look at these complacent, worldly Christians drifting away, she said, I have to ask the question, is that me? Is is that me? Now, this is a dear, faithful Christian, so I don't suspect this is her at all, but I think one of the ways that we guarantee this isn't us, and it doesn't become us, is that we're willing to ask the question, is this me? Me? Is Jesus talking about me here? Have I, become, uh, have I become worldly? Have I become complacent? Am I spiritually dead? And I think the answer is, is the word at work in you? The best I can tell, I've preached about 500 sermons here. I think some of you have been here for the vast majority of those. Pastor Walton has, has preached around 150, and many of you have been here for the vast majority of those. Let me ask you, what do you do with the word you hear preached week after week after week? Have have you ever asked, is that me? In a way that leads you to faith and repentance. 
Or have you become what the Puritans used to call sermon-proof? You've heard it so much that familiarity breeds contempt. And week after week, you hear the sermon. You maybe even say, hey, that was a good sermon. I remember that illustration about the anchovies. That was great. But what difference is it making in your life? Jesus says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you have ears to hear, then the Word of God will transform your life. Sardis thought it was impregnable to the enemy. I mentioned that in the introduction. It was up on the the cliff. They thought they were safe. And twice they were caught totally unaware. They were in great danger and had no idea. And the same is true here. They're complacent as a church and they're in great danger. Do you know that one of the most dangerous things in the whole world is to be spiritually dead in the church. See, if you're spiritually dead outside of the church, then at least you have enough, hopefully, spiritual awareness to say, you know, I'm not really interested in this Christianity thing. But it's dangerous when you come to church every week and you have the illusion that just by being in church, you can assuage your conscience. Just by being in church, you're good for the week. This was the condition of Sardis. They were busy, they were dead, and they were clueless about it. And that's why Jesus says to them and to us, remember what you received and heard, keep it and repent. What does it mean to repent? I warned you about lists. The Puritan Thomas Watson has a list of of what it looks like to repent. He says repentance is spiritual medicine made up of six special ingredients. I encourage you to write them down. First, true repentance begins to see sin in ourselves. It's so easy to read the Word or to hear a sermon and look around and say, you know, I hope he's listening. He really needs to hear that, doesn't he? It's so easy to look at the outside world and say, why can't they get it together like I have it together? True repentance sees sin in ourselves first, is willing to ask the question, is it me? Second ingredient of true repentance is sorrow for sin. You know, most of us, when we're confronted with sin in our lives, our default mechanism is either to make excuses or to be indifferent. But true repentance recognizes that our sins are against a holy God, a God who loves us, a God who fearfully and wonderfully made us, who has seen every thought and intention of our hearts, and it leads to sorrow over sin. Now, sorrow, says Watson, is such a great and intense emotion that it has to vent, and so the third ingredient of true repentance is confession. And I don't mean confession to a priest. The last thing one sinner needs is to hear from another sinner every sin that they've ever committed. We don't need to go to other people with our sins. We go to the Lord Jesus to confess our sins. It's not to say there aren't times to acknowledge what we've done, but we cannot forgive each other's sins. Only God can do that. And so true repentance goes to Christ himself as our mediator and confesses our sins. He already knows. Do you know what the word confess means in Greek? Homo logeo in Greek? It means to say the same thing. When you confess your sins, you're saying about yourself what God already knows to be true about you. 
Fourth ingredient, according to Watson, is shame for sin. Now, sometimes people say shame is a bad thing. There are times we ought to blush over what we've done. I don't mean a lingering shame where we're still carrying with us things that we did 30 years ago. If we have come to Christ, then he has borne the shame of our sin. But we ought to realize at times that that we have acted shamefully. In fact, Jeremiah indicts Israel by saying you are a people who have forgotten how to blush. You've forgotten what it is to be ashamed of things. That's a great sign of danger. Let me quote Watson here, because I think his language is wonderful. He says, blushing is the color of virtue. It it means your soul hasn't yet been ruined. He says, when the heart has been made black with sin, grace makes the face red with blushing, so that we would run to Christ in in repentance. Now, when we see the shamefulness of sin, it leads to a fifth thing, and that's hatred for sin. You know, the worldly person hates the consequences of sin. I hate that I got caught. That's what we call remorse. Repentance hates sin itself. Why? Because sin is dehumanizing. It is subhuman. Because sin is foolish. Because sin hurts others, but more than anything, because sin is an act of rebellion against the God who loves us. Repentance means hatred for our sin. And then the sixth and final ingredient of repentance is turning from it. You know, anyone can change behavior, but true repentance starts in the heart. As the heart is softened so that we begin to hate our sin and turn from it, it is evidence that Christ is dwelling in your heart. In the wilderness temptation, Jesus sought, uh, Satan sought to, to test Christ into turning stones into bread, proving Christ's divinity. Well, Christ has done a far greater miracle. He takes a heart of stone, turns it into a heart of flesh. One that once loved sin, now hates sin and turns from it. Do you have ears to hear? Then we need to repent of areas of complacency and indifference and remember what we received. Remember the joy we once had in receiving the gospel and repent. That's the first remedy is repentance. The second part of the remedy for the dead church is the remnant. Look at verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Do do you see our Lord's language? He's saying, Sardis, you've sought to make a name for yourself. Well, among you, there's a few names that I know. It's those who have not soiled their garment. It's those who have not been stained by the world. There's a remnant there. You know, Sardis wasn't just a dangerous place for the dead Christians. There's danger for the remnant as well, that they would become lukewarm like the rest of the church. Do you remember who Marie Curie was? Madame Curie, she was the chemist who discovered radium. She spent her life working with radioactive material. I learned this week that her tomb at the Pantheon in Paris is lined with three centimeters of lead in every direction to protect the public from radiation because her body remains so radioactive. 
and, and her, all of her personal belongings are expected to remain radioactive for the next 1,500 years. But she is not nearly as dangerous as being in a church that appears to be alive but is really dead. Because what happens is the deadness of that church tends to drain life, even out of those who are spiritually alive. For the remnant, it becomes so easy to ignore small compromises here and habitual sins there, especially when everybody else is doing it as well. But by God's grace, there is a remnant at Sardis who keeps their garments unstained, who are walking in in obedience. They hadn't caught the disease of complacency. The remnant understands that we are not cleansed by Christ so that we can go get dirty again, but in order that our purity may serve to the glory of God. The faithful remnant are those who love Christ and love to worship and love to be under the ministry of the Word. They love the sacraments. They love anything that draws them closer to Jesus. The remnant are those in whom the Spirit dwells so richly that the fruit of the Spirit creates this beautiful aroma of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You can smell it as you walk into the church. The, the remnant are those who, who aren't walking around saying, I need to be busy, give me something to do, because they're already pouring their lives into one another. They're pouring their lives into their neighbors. They're pouring their lives out for the sake of the gospel. A faithful remnant is invaluable to the church of Christ. It's a sign that the glory of Christ has not departed from the church. Uh, Remember back in, excuse me, in Revelation 2, the church at Ephesus. Jesus warned them if they do not repent, he would remove the lampstand from them. Now, I find it amazing that Christ has not yet removed the lampstand from the church at Sardis, but it seems to be for the sake of the remnant this remnant that he's raised up and is preserving. They keep the gospel light alive. And so it's this faithful remnant that keeps the church going and gives the church some degree of of hope in the future as Christ works through a few to preserve the gospel light in the church. Well, so what are the remedies for a, a dying church? Repentance and a faithful remnant. A remnant that says we will not be soiled by the world no matter what everyone else is doing. But that can get hard, can't it? It can get wearying, can't it? With that in mind, Jesus specifically addresses the remnant, urging them to stand strong by fixing their eyes on the reward that awaits them. That's the third thing. Look at verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They'll walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out of the book of, uh, his name out of the book of life. I'll confess his name before my Father and before his angels. You, you see the incredible promises that are there. They'll walk with me in white, he says. White is a color of purity, of festivity, and of victory. There will be a great white throne upon which Jesus stands. And he says here, you will walk with me in white. Let me ask you, dear ones, and this is part of the reward of abiding in Christ. 
that you make progress in sanctification? Do you ever get frustrated that, that growing in Christ-likeness just doesn't happen nearly as fast as we want it to? You might make progress in one area, then you start to see 10 others. And I always think of, of, of growth in grace as being like a game of whack-a-mole. You, one sin gets put to death, 10 more pop up. It can get really discouraging, but Jesus says here, to those who abide, to those who remain in me and with me, you'll, be, you'll walk in white. That's why Hebrews calls Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. That's why Philippians says that he who began a good work in us will carry it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Do not be discouraged, dear ones, when sanctification is slow, because one day it will be complete. And then he says in verse 4, another great promise here, they are worthy. Now, that's a hard word for a Christian to hear because we look at ourselves and say, there's nothing worthy in me. But he's speaking of those who are his by faith. See, God grants us to have faith in Jesus Christ, and then God grants as the reward of our faith all that belongs to Christ. He took everything that belonged to me, the unworthiness. He took it and he bore it upon the cross. And he gives me everything that belongs to him. He alone is worthy of anything good. And yet, by faith, I receive everything that Christ was worthy of. In Christ, we are counted worthy. And then third, he says, as, as a promise here, that he will not blot out their names from the book of life. The book of life is, is, in Revelation, this eternal record of those who belong to God. And he's using that name, that word name again, showing us that he knows intimately those who are his. Now, these are tremendously encouraging words to us today, but probably to the church at Sardis, these were even more encouraging words. To the ancient church, persecution was a daily reality, and cities, most cities, had registers of their citizens. And if a citizen uh, committed a heinous crime, his name, her name, would be blotted out of that registry. Among the heinous crimes that a person could commit was a refusal to worship Christ as Lord. And it's something the remnant refused to do. This means that some of the believers, perhaps at Sardis and certainly in other cities, would one day have their names blotted out of the city register. But Jesus says, you will never have your name blotted out of my book of life. That creates a question for us, doesn't it? If the faithful will never have their names blotted out, were there some at Sardis who were unfaithful and therefore their names were blotted out? Whose names were once in the book and Jesus has now crossed them out? Certainly by implication, we see that there are some whose names are not in that book, whose names are not on the registry of heaven. So we have to ask the question, were they ever there? Were their names ever in that book in the first place? Did they lose their salvation? How should we understand it? Well, the reality is that though some may come to the embassy of heaven on earth, the church, they never become true citizens. Look with me at 1 John 2 for a moment. 
Turn back just a, a few pages. The early church had to wrestle with this because what would happen is people would get on board with, with Christianity. They, they like what Christians were doing. They liked the novelty of it. They didn't understand persecution that was coming, and people would abandon ship. And the early church is having to wrestle with, what do we do with, with the people that used to sit in the row right next to me in worship, and now they're gone? Now maybe they're back at the synagogue week after week after week. What do we do with that? 1 John 2 verse 19 helps us understand, what about those who once seemed to be Christians? Did they lose their salvation? Verse 19, John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. He's speaking of a heavenly citizenship there. They were among us. They departed from us. They were never truly citizens of heaven. Their names were never really written in that book. If they were, they would have continued with us, John says, but they went out that it might be plain that they, are, uh, they all are not of us. So it's not that their names were once there and then by disobedience, their names were blotted out. It's that they were never believers in the first place. They were, they were never citizens of heaven in the first place. So whose names are written in the book of life and will never be blotted out? Those to whom Jesus has given the gift of faith, who will persevere in the faith, who cling to Christ, who pursue holiness, who keep themselves unstained by the world. Those will hear their name from the lips of the Lord Jesus. That's the fourth thing, by the way, that we see the fourth promise. He says he will confess the names of these believers before his Father and the angels. In the final judgment, Jesus will name your name acquitted. He belongs to me. She belongs to me. Those sins that once were attached to their name, they were attached to my nail-pierced hands. Colossians 2 says that, the, that Christ's death canceled the record of our debts. You get what he's saying, don't you? He's saying it, Sardis, and he's saying it, First Scots. You don't need to worry about making a name for yourself in this world because all that matters is that your name is written in the book of life and that one day I will confess your name before my Father. That's the only time it matters if your name is really known. You know, all these rewards that are promised here are wonderful beyond all measure. They all tie together in Jesus Christ. All of our unworthiness, Christ took it upon himself. He gives us his infinite worthiness. He, his fight of blue, uh, bleeding wounds he bears, we're going to sing this in a, in a moment, they still cry out for us. They're eternally efficacious for us. So let me ask you, dear ones, is that, is that the driving factor of your life? Is that who we are as a church, that we love and we live for the gospel? Or do we just care about making a name for ourselves, Having a nice building, having this or that? What do we care about here? Jesus is saying at Sardis, the fruit of their lives and the fruit of our lives show what we treasure. If our treasure is the Lord Jesus and his great rewards in heaven, then this will set the tone, the trajectory of our life. 
This is why the Lord Jesus was able to expect that the believers of, at Sardis would walk worthy of their profession. What about us? What if Jesus had written an eighth letter here to the church at First Scots? To the angel of the church at First Scots, right? What would it say? Well, We've been through five letters to us already. And the question isn't, what would Jesus say to us? The question is, what have we done with what he has already said? Do you have ears to hear? Have you listened? If we're really hearing what he's saying, we're going to ask the question, is that me? Am, Am I spiritually just faking it, going through the motions like the people of Sardis? You know, how dreadful would it be to make a name for yourself in this world, for everybody to say, oh, he's such a great Christian. She's such a great Christian. That was a great church. But the Lord Jesus does not confess our name before his Father. Could there be a more tragic ending to life than that? But what greater privilege and joy could there be than for our names to be known to the Lord Jesus and to hear your name spoken by by his lips before the Father in the day of judgment? May we be sure that we are his and that there is evidence of his life, his spirit living through us, not according to what we have done, but what he is doing in us and through us. How do we apply this text? First question is, when is the last time you really repented? You know, Christians often think repentance is a one-time thing that happens when you get converted. Repentance is a daily thing. If we are Christians, we should repent as often as we sin. And so if you have stopped sinning, then I guess you can stop repenting. But that's not going to be the case for us. Repentance is evidence that we have ears to hear. Every aspect of your life needs repentance. Your church presence, your work, everything you do. But let me especially use marriage as an illustration because I think it teaches us a lot. Sometimes you hear of a marriage breaking up. One partner or the other is pursuing divorce, and the reason given is they said, I just fell out of love. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Friends, marriage is a vow before God that you take till death do you part. You don't fall out of love. You fall out of repentance. When you stop repenting, marriage flounders. When you stop repenting, work flounders. Your relationships flounder. Church becomes a low priority. See, it's true in marriage that when we fall out of repentance, life falls apart. It's true in our walk with the Lord. Sardis fell out of repentance, and the whole church was dying. When's the last time you repented? Seriously, of sin. It's one of the signs not that you're dead, but that you are truly alive in Christ. Second, Let me speak to believers in this church who would be considered the remnant here. Maybe it's all of you. Maybe it's a small portion. Only the Lord sees the heart. But I know there are some who 
long for this congregation to be faithful, not just today, but into the future, long after you and I are gone. And not a church that just goes through the motions, but a church that has a holy zeal for worship, for fellowship, for evangelism. What can you do as the remnant? I've already talked about several things. Delighting in Christ, bearing fruit, discipling others. But the greatest thing you can do as a remnant is to pray for your church. It's the the purpose for our midweek prayer meeting to plead with God to make this church alive, to grant us faithfulness, to make us spiritually sensitive and keep us from complacency so that the lampstand would not be removed until Jesus returns to take this church to himself. The prayer of the remnant ought to be, Lord, save us from hypocrisy and make believe empty, hollow orthodoxy. Keep the face of Christ ever before us. Let us feel and embrace in our inward parts the reality of who Jesus Christ is and may the love of Jesus compel us day after day. Lord, give us the mind of Christ. Keep the gospel as our great ambition, not that we would make a name for ourselves, but that the way this church lives and worships and evangelizes would set before a lost and dying world the glory of Jesus. This is what the remnant ought to pray for. And as we do that, we entrust this church to Jesus that he would do a work here that would endure long after all of us are gone. Let's go to God now and do that. Lord, we see that things are not always as they seem. And it becomes easy as Christians to care more about what people see on the outside than what you see on the inside. It becomes easy, in a sense, to fake it. Lord, save us as a church and as individuals from hypocrisy and, and, and hollow, make-believe orthodoxy. Cause us to live every moment of our lives quorum Deo, before the face of God. Would the truths of Christianity not be things that we merely ascend to with our lips, but that they would fill our hearts? Would the doctrines of grace not merely be things that we can recite, but would they be things that we go to daily for hope and life in a lost and dying world? Oh, Lord, as a church, keep the gospel before us as our great ambition and help us to live the cross of Christ so large that the world would see that it is you at work in us to will and to do according to your good pleasure. Protect this church, and we pray, O oh God, that we would be upheld, not in uh, traditionalism or emotionalism or, or do-goodism or any of the other isms, but 